for your mercy and your grace that we know so supremely in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the grand narrative of redemptive history. Lord, each one of us have been exposed to false narratives the entire week in the workplace, even perhaps even on television and social media. And Lord, we need to be reoriented back to reality. We pray that you would do that this morning through the preaching of the word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the fruits of my new conversion in August of 1991, and also one of the the means of my growth in my young faith, was in recognizing and appreciating God's remarkable works of providence in my life. Uh, One of several examples I could give, uh, it had been about a year since I was converted and now I'm a new graduate from the University of Alabama and I needed a job and I started interviewing with this particular company and there was a connection. Wallace Computer Services, I had a master's in marketing and they, they needed that degree in this particular job and so there was a connection there and so I interviewed with them and they They told me they would call me back in a few days, so I went home to my parents. This is the pre-cell phone era, so I sat by the phone. Uh, Our young people have no clue what I'm talking about, but I sat by the phone for several days, and there was no call. Meanwhile, my grandmother called me and said, Brian, would you drive me to Mobile? She wanted to to see her daughter, my Aunt Marcia. I told my grandmother, I said, I'm waiting for a call. I don't want to miss this call, but I'll give them two more days. They haven't called me in two days. I will drive you to Mobile. Well, they didn't call. And so I drove my grandmother. I was discouraged at this point. I drove her to Mobile. We'd been there two or three days, and as she always did with me, we got on our knees and we prayed. And she began to pray for my job prospects. She didn't want a grandson living in the basement playing video games. And as she is praying, the phone rang, literally, as she is praying. And it was my father, and I could hear his voice over the answering machine. He used to have those. And he said, Brian, this is dad, a victor from Wallace Computer Services has called the house and has left a number. So my grandmother and I celebrated his remarkable providence as she is praying for me at the very moment. But it gets better. I got the number and I called And a computer message said, you do not need to dial a one or an area code. I looked at my grandmother and I said, this is a local number. So I called the number and Victor said, who would be my boss? Brian, can you come down to Mobile tomorrow? I said, Victor, I'm already here. He said, That's remarkable. I said, what's remarkable is I was just praying about this with my grandmother. He said, you didn't happen to bring a suit, did you? 
I said, yes, I'm going to church on Sunday down here. <laughs> so I ended up getting the job. And they placed me in Birmingham. Long story short, which led me through a chain of events to Nashville, where I would meet Heather. And doors would be opened up at Southern Seminary and then Fisherville Baptist Church. Remarkable providence. And the Lord used events like this in my young life, my young faith, to teach me something of his greatness. Meanwhile, at the same time, God's word for the first time in my life, for 23 years, the word was boring and dull. I didn't read it. It had come alive. Of course, it had always been alive, but I had to be made alive to see it. The gospel promises were so real to me. They overwhelmed me. Looking back, the Lord was priming me. He was preparing me by his providence, his glorious providences and his promises, as he does every believer, for the plans that he has for us, not the least which are his conforming us to the image of his son. And analogously, it's clear that David is being trained Primed in the Lord's greatness as the Lord is preparing him for the great assignment that he has for him. We saw last week that Jonathan came at a very difficult time and, and he strengthened David's hands in the Lord. He took him back to God when, when David couldn't see evidence of God. He couldn't feel God. Jonathan strengthened his hand in the Lord by the promises of God. He says, you will be king. And the reason he could say that is because the promises that had been made to David. And then David experienced remarkable providence because as Saul was bearing down on him, a messenger at that very moment comes to Saul and tells him the Philistines are attacking the land. And Saul turns back and pursues the Philistines. Interestingly, chapter 23 that we looked at last week and chapter 24 here are connected by two great acts of divine providence. And so at this point, Saul has responded to the latest outbreak from the Philistines, their aggression. He's returned to Gibeah, his home, and now he is centering on getting rid of David. That brings us to our first point, a dilemma birthed by providence. A dilemma birthed by providence. Look with me in verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel. Chosen men. These are the elite soldiers. And went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And so after Saul has addressed the Philistine problem, he was told, it says. 
he was told Saul, David is in the wilderness. Saul was never without a scouting report. Uh, that warfare is unrelenting, isn't it? He was never without a scouting report. And so he takes 3,000 elite soldiers, chosen men, and he goes in pursuit of David and his 600 men. And his trip's going to take him about 30 miles to an otherwise unspecified, unidentified place called the Wild Goats Rocks near the Dead Sea. Incidentally, when I was there in En Gedi, that very area, we saw wild goats everywhere. So they're still there. In verse 3, and he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. And so providentially, the, the cave that Saul uses was the same one. Now, there are many. This would be like winning the lottery. Though I don't advocate the lottery. There are many, many caves in Engedi. And he happens to come into the one where David is. Notice in verse 4. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. This was an extraordinary providence and so extraordinary that David's men concluded God is in this and God is going to allow David to kill Saul. Notice the second part of verse 4. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Now, he had promised he would give the Philistines into his hand, but no place does it say that he would give Saul into his hand. I think that they are engaging in some creative theology here. But it does remind us how powerful words are. Words are powerful. And their words had a deep influence on David. Notice the last part of verse 4. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, what is the significance of this? Well, if you'll flip back just a couple of pages to chapter 15. Look back in chapter 15 in verse 23. Samuel says to Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. There, Saul is informed he will be Rejected as king. He is being rejected. Notice in verse 27. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And so the tearing of the robe 
signified there the loss of Saul's kingdom. And so when David cuts that piece, that cloth, from the robe, that is far from arbitrary. He's reminding Saul of that day. The day he was told, there's one better than you coming. And it will be his kingdom. David is staking his claim to the kingdom. And he does it in a way that shames the present king, Saul. And that's why we see David's reaction in verse 5. And afterward, David's heart struck him. That's a beautiful way of saying he was convicted of his sin. His heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. David immediately recognized the implications of his act and he was deeply convicted. Now certainly David would have agreed with the men that God had providentially placed Saul at his mercy. David had a very keen understanding of the providence of God. Just read the Psalms. But the mere fact that God had provided that opportunity didn't mean that David was to lay his hand upon Saul. Oftentimes, our providential circumstances are tests for us. They're tests. And these tests reveal what we are truly trusting in or who we are trusting in. That's why open doors are not in themselves proofs of God's will. I mean, think of the temptation narrative. Through the temptation of the ruler of this age, the devil, doors were opened to Jesus. Doors in which he could walk and have the kingdoms of this world without a cross. Open doors. But open doors are not necessarily proofs of God's will. Open doors are often tasked. Thank God our Savior passed the test as our covenant-keeping substitute. And think of the test this would have been for David. Scholars tell us it's been some time now that he's been living in the caves. He was anointed king of Israel. And instead of a castle, he lives in a cave. He's been on the run from those powerful, tormented men in the world for years at this point. A.W. Pink says this so eloquently. One stroke of his sword and he steps into a throne. That's all he has to do. One stroke of the sword. Farewell to poverty. Farewell the life of a hunted goat. Reproaches, sneers, defeat would cease. Adulations, triumphs, riches would be his. But they would be his at the sacrifice of faith. At the sacrifice of a humbled will every waiting on God's time at the sacrifice of a thousand precious experiences of God's care 
God's provision, God's guidance, God's tenderness. No, even a throne at that price is too dear. Faith will wait. That is a word that could apply to young people as they wait for their future mates. God has ordained for them. That is a word for every believer here. Faith will wait on the Lord. And David understands that. So David, in one sense, passed the test. He did not do violence to Saul. But David is a man after God's own heart. And he recognized he was still deeply convicted by what he did do. Now notice in verse 6. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. Just remarkable. To put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. David saw this as more than an act against Saul. It was ultimately against the Lord who had commanded, for instance, in Exodus 22, 28, not to curse rulers. Israel was forbidden under the law to curse their rulers. And remarkably, Saul, David speaks as if Saul is the only one who's been anointed. Isn't that remarkable? He was anointed too by the same man, Samuel. Humility, as seen here, comes from this deep conviction that as David would write later in Psalm 16, I have no good apart from the Lord. And particularly in the case of a leader in whom God places over us, it will lead us, this humility, to respect the authority that God has ordained over us. And even more so, God's anointed king. Now, Gerard Van Groningen, in a wonderful book on messianic revelation in the Old Testament, speaks to the significance of laying one's hand or perhaps even speaking ill of God's anointed. Why did men consider the anointed to be kept from attack? The answer lies in the fact that once anointed, the individual set apart or consecrated to God. Hence, to touch, defile, and attack the anointed one was to approach the Lord himself and to seek to defile, harm, and remove the Lord from his rightful place. Of course, that certainly speaks significantly to the anointed one we know as Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But have you ever considered the fact, based on the, that statement, that we're all anointed in Christ? Every believer here, you have an anointing from the Holy One. If we see each other as anointed ones, 1 John chapter 2, I don't, I'm not making that up. If we see each other as anointed ones in Christ, perhaps it will affect the way we treat each other and the way we speak to each other and speak about each other. And so David repents of what he had done, and then he seeks to prevent his men from sinning similarly. Notice in verse 7. So David persuaded his men with these words, 
and then did not permit them to attack Saul. Rebellion against authority is generally mobilized by inflammatory words. It typically starts with one person and then one listener and then it multiplies. That's how rebellion against God-ordained authority occurs. And this rebellion highlights the weaknesses and the faults of the leaders. But words can also quench the flame of such a revolt. And we see that here with David. Meanwhile, Saul is oblivious to it all. He is completely oblivious to what has transpired. And so he returns to his men. Notice in the second part of verse 7, Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. But when he was still within earshot, notice verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. The remarkable grace on David to be able to do this. This man has not only betrayed David, he's tried to kill him for years. He's taken precious years from David. And here David is honoring him. This was dangerous though. It was courageous but dangerous because now David is revealing his locale. He, he's informing Saul and the 3,000 where he's hiding. And remember, he only had 600 men. There's a five to one ratio, Saul's advantage. And not only that, David had a, a group of misfits, largely speaking. Saul's men were chosen men from Israel. But note this respect, note this homage that he pays to Saul. And then what David's going to do here, he's going to give Saul what has been called by others the most passionate, eloquent plea in all of ancient literature for reconciliation between two people. And it's very insightful for us. And so in the first part of this passage, we see that there is a dilemma birthed by providence. In the last part of this passage, we see a dialogue birthed by promises. Notice with me in verse 9. David knew that Saul, rather, the air is blowing my pages. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? So he's asking him this question. Why are you listening to people who do not have the mind of God? Not all counsel is created equally. You know that, don't you? We must test the spirits. Saul had not tested them. Why are you listening? Essentially, here's what he's saying. Why are you listening to unbelievers? Unbelievers do not have any capacity to give you wise counsel. It's a word for us. 
Verse 10, behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. And so David points out God's providence. The Lord gave you into my hands. He speaks to the influence of others. There are those who want me to kill you. And then he speaks to his restraint, but I spared you. And then he's going to give him material evidence. He's going to give him literally material evidence to prove that he's not out to, to harm Saul. Notice in verse 11. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And here is the secret behind David's restraint. He has faith in God's future justice. Oh, if we had that same faith, that vengeance is the Lord's. Now let's go back to last week. Jonathan had strengthened David's hand in the Lord, it says, in God, which tells us that David's hand was weak. Now his hand has been strengthened in the Lord. Jonathan took him back to God and who God is, the person of God, the promises of God. And that's why Jonathan said, you will be king. Because God promised you that you would be king. And he is a covenant-keeping, trustworthy God. And that encouragement appears to have reverberating effects. Now, very important here. If Jonathan had been a worldly friend, he would have counseled David most assuredly to exact his pound of flesh. Saul has harmed you, and now it's time for you to harm him. He has hurt you, so now it's time for you to hurt him back. Destroy him. He has tried to destroy you. And this is vital for us to hear this. Because every believer here Every believer here, no exceptions, has been called to be like Jonathan. We are responsible to each other to strengthen our brothers, our, strength, our sisters' hands in the Lord. We've been commanded by example, Jonathan, and by commands. We saw that in the one another text last week. That's informing David's action here, most assuredly. These texts are not to be read as disconnected text. David is operating with hands that have been strengthened in the Lord because of a godly friend. Conversely, 
when we need encouragement. And it's likely you don't go through a day or week where you don't need encouragement because we live in a fallen world and we're weak. When we need encouragement and we need counsel, we need to be able to discern the kind of counsel that strengthens our hand in God versus the counsel that strengthens our hands in ourselves. That is, taking matters in our own hands. One is of the Lord. One is the spirit of Antichrist. And David, with his hands strengthened in the, in the Lord, was trusting in the promises. One of the promises is in Deuteronomy 32. Listen to this. Vengeance is mine, God says to his people, and recompense. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the days of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Speaking of the unrepentant. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. David seems to allude to that when he says here in verse 12, may the Lord avenge me against you. That's not my place. David was obeying Paul before Paul wrote this. If it is possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place for wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, you feed him. If he thirsts, you give him a drink. For in doing so, you will reap coals of fire on his head. David was trusting in the promises. His hand had been strengthened in the Lord because he had surrounded himself with friends who knew God. So it's faith in the person and the promises of God that enabled David to be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. Even as he was being betrayed, even as hostility was raining on him, from this unrepentant man. Now in verse 13, David is going to conclude his defense by quoting some unknown ancient proverb. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. By their fruit you will know them. But my hand shall not be against you. So this was likely some well-known adage at the time of course David had raised his hand to Saul by cutting off the corner of his robe but the difference between David and the wicked is this David was repentant that's the difference Saul on the other hand was unrepentantly pursuing David. He wanted his head. Hunting him down. And this was wicked. Now this is a very important principle out of this. If you can consistently and unrepentantly attack 
another person. Whether it's physical like Saul's was to David or merely verbal. That's the category called wickedness. It's wicked. David knew that. And Saul had been wicked to him. And even so, David would not seek to avenge the king for the wrongs done against him. Having said that, doesn't mean David wasn't hurt. Doesn't mean that he wasn't deeply bothered by Saul. We see that in verse 14. He says, after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? That's how David probably felt after this years in the caves. After a flea? Note the lowliness. But also note the God-centeredness. And David's response clearly impacted Saul. Verse 16. Or verse 15. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David is punting it to God. He's not playing Avenger. He's giving it over to the Lord. He hurts. Of course he hurts. This would hurt anyone. But he's trusting the Lord with it. And it has an effect on Saul. Verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? It's almost he has been brought back to sanity for the first time in years. Up to this point, he hasn't been calling him by the name David, much less son. Been calling him Jesse's son. Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. David's refusal to take personal vengeance impacted Saul greatly. It led Saul to see himself in a new light. Note, he was not convicted by David's arguments, by David's accusations, but by the testimony of David's life. Up to now, he has refused to have any kind of personal touch with David. And now he calls him my son, David. Notice in verse 17, he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Oh, that is the life of faith. That this is countercultural, isn't it? And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? Rationally speaking, at least in our fallenness, no. But David had. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day quite remarkable and then 
after pronouncing this blessing on David, what he says in verse 20 is even more surprising. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. That's the first time Saul has uttered these words. What prompted it? A man whose faith was so deeply rooted in the person and the promises of God that rather than taking revenge, he punted it to the Lord. Behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. So not only was Saul now convinced David would be king, he recognized that Israel would prosper, would flourish under the hand of David. And like a person who's been humbled and brought to his knees, he lays aside all his pretense here and he makes two requests of David to close out the passage. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me. He's concerned about his legacy. Let me just say here, I do not think that Saul is fully repentant or truly repentant. We'll talk about that, but the ensuing narrative will make that clear. This is called worldly sorrow, the kind Judas had. Godly sorrow is God-centered. Worldly sorrow is me-centered. He's been busted. He's been humiliated, but he's not repentant. But he has been disarmed, so to speak, by David. He says, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Again, he's concerned about his name. A broken person who is truly experiencing godly sorrow leading unto repentance is not concerned about anything but repentance. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. It's very interesting how the chapter ends. Saul goes home, and though David is going to be true to his commitment to Saul, one of the clearest examples of that is with Mephibosheth. We'll read about in 2 Samuel 9, a beautiful chapter. Even though David is going to be true to his commitment made to Saul, when Saul went home, where did David go? He went up to the stronghold with his men. What does that tell you? He doesn't trust Saul. He does not believe that Saul is truly repentant. David knows that only time reveals whether one is truly repentant. Words and emotions are not sufficient evidence. Repentant people do have the right words. They do have emotions that reflect godly sorrow. But only time reveals if a person is truly repentant. So he goes back to the cave. Turns out, it was a wise move. We'll see that in time. But in chapter 24, we have such a helpful and beautiful example in David, don't we? Remarkable example. A helpful example 
countercultural example. But I want you to know this and remember this. Not even David is going to be consistent in this example. Chapter 25 will reflect that in his encounter with Nabal. But he does point us to the one who would be the supreme example for us. Remember, the Old Testament is preparing us, and 1 Samuel is preparing us for a greater king. Yes, David would be a great king, but by the time we're done with 2 Samuel, it is very evident we need one greater than David. And the one in whom he points is the greater example. Perhaps Peter was reflecting on that when he was speaking, writing to believers like you and me who were suffering because of their faith. Their houses were being pillaged. They were losing their job opportunities because they wouldn't bow the knee to Caesar. They were being punished for being Christians. And here's what Peter says to them in 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus is our example. What would Jesus do? So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. That is, when he was being persecuted. For his righteousness. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. That's the gospel way. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And there's not a person in here has suffered at the hands of another sinner like Jesus suffered from sinners. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Such an example for us. But if we're honest, Jesus' response and even David's response in 1 Samuel 24 to being reviled is not good news for us. It's not the good news that we, our hearts long for. Why? Because that's not how we generally respond to being reviled. We tend to respond like Peter when he pulled out that sword and cut off Malchus's ear. Nor, it's not often how we counsel others to respond when they are reviled. But here's the good news. Jesus didn't come just to be our example or we would all be doomed. He came to be our savior. And in the very next verse, Peter, considering what he had just said, says this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore your sin of revenge, your vengeful heart. He bore your sin. And here's why. 
that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That's a word to every believer. It's a promise to every believer. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. He's your shepherd. He's your overseer. And that's why that promise is so glorious. You don't have to play the role of the vigilante. Vengeance is the Lord's. You can trust him. You can trust in his promises. But if you've never trusted in Christ, the only promise you have today is the promise of certain judgment. Actually, there's another promise. If you will repent of your sin and trust in Christ alone, your sins will be forgiven. And the whole trajectory of your life will be changed. Because now, for the first time, you will have a Savior. You'll have an overseer of your soul. So won't you trust in him this morning as we pray? Father, what an important text for us. All of us have been hurt by sinners. We've also been the agents of hurt, if we're honest. We're sinners. And yet, a greater David came and absorbed the wrath that we deserve. And I pray, Lord, by musing, reflecting upon the promises of the gospel, it would transform our hearts that we might get rid of bitterness, rage, and anger, and brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice, that we would be kind and compassionate to one another, even those who have hurt us, forgiving one another just as in Christ you forgave us. And Father, if there's any here today that have never trusted Christ, Lord, that they would be compelled to come and speak to me about to, how to trust in Jesus, what that means, who he is, what he's done. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. As we stand.